This podcast is brought to you by Primary Intelligence, the leader in win-loss analysis, focused on helping businesses uncover the unique story on how each sales rep can win more deals. Hey everyone, and thanks for joining me on another rousing edition of Sales Intelligence Weekly brought to you by Primary Intelligence. I'm Ryan Queller. As a sales rep, there's almost, almost nothing worse than when a deal you thought you had in the back goes silent. When a customer says no, there's at least some closure. But when a customer says, look, I'll think about it or completely ghosts you as you follow up week after week after week, there's almost nothing more frustrating. But never fear, if you haven't experienced this, you will. Uh, It's something that all sales reps experience. For a sales rep, customer indecision is a time vampire and can be soul crushing. And for sales leaders, customer indecision makes it hard to predict pipeline and revenue. So the question is, what if there's a way that you could do that you could do better? We could get better at predicting no decision deals and overcome customer indecision. So when you get ghosted, who are you going to call? Well, today we've called someone who has been business myth busting for decades in his upcoming book, The Jolt Effect, directly addresses this long-standing but poorly understood problem of customer indecision. Of course, I'm talking about the the mighty Mr. Matt. Dixon. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ryan. It's great to be here. I I appreciate the invite. Absolutely. All right, my friend. So listen, our listeners all know you as the co-author of the Challenger Sale, the Challenger Customer, the Effortless Experience, the articles on Harvard Business Review. It just goes on and on and on. He's got a PhD. I mean, all of these things, the persona is grand, my friend. (laughs) But tell me a little bit about you. Like, how how do you want people to know you? Tell us more. Yeah, I, I said, as Ryan and I were getting to know each other, I said, you know, what, what I really need to do is hire you to come into my house and say all these things in front of my kids so that they, <laughs> so, because they, they generally think dad doesn't know very much. So um, uh, I, you know, it's, a, it's such a good question and it kind of makes you, you know, sit back and it's a, it's a hard question. That's a big question, but I think, you know, I grew up in a world and we we're talking about this um, uh, when we first uh, got connected and got to know one another. I grew up in a world at, at a company called CEB, which was acquired by Gartner, where we really prided ourselves on something we called uh, disagreement research. And disagreement research was really geared toward trying to find the highest level at which we could disagree with our clients. So in our case, these were heads of sales, or you know, I, I also oversaw the customer experience, customer service uh, part of our business. And we were always out there trying to test, you know, what are those things that, that we've all been taught to believe, whether that's you know, selling is all about building great, you know, relationships, being responsive, uh, being a good, uh, you know, needs diagnoser or in customer service, great customer service is all about above and beyond wow moments and delighting customers, those pillars of the conventional wisdom that if you could bring data to bear, turns out sometimes they're, they're a little bit flawed, right? But they've been so woven into, into the way we do things and we've, it's been passed down from leader to manager to frontline representative. We've never really stopped to question these things. So I guess if I thought about how people would like to remember me professionally was as somebody who uh, had a penchant for, you know, um, uh, provocative uh, disagreement, but backed by data and woven into powerful stories that ultimately just gets executives to think a little bit differently, whether that's how we engage people through the sales interaction, how we serve customers when they have, uh, you know, service problems or issues that, that they need our help with, um, that, that caused people to kind of sit back 
maybe squint, furrow their brow and go, huh, I never thought about it that way before. That's interesting. <laughs> maybe we're not doing it the right way. I love that. That that provocative, we there's two words that I use all the time with my team. It's provoke, evoke. Yeah. You know, and, and it's it's those are that we, you want that. If you're gonna be working with people, you want to bring that value to the table, and that's how we yeah. do it. Okay, yeah. so you've got this new book, The Jolt mm-hmm. Effect. That's I think it's launching in September. Is that right? September, that's right. Okay. So you know, I understand the challenger sale, the challenger customer, effortless experience. What led you to the jolt effect? Why this book? Yeah, uh, uh, great question. So we, um, this was such a unique undertaking for us. Um, we kind of, uh, we by when I say we, I'm talking about myself and my co-author, uh, Ted McKenna, um, in March of 2020, we all remember March of 2020 uh, vividly, right? And in sales, um, March of 2020 meant that all sales went virtual, like literally overnight. Um, you know, we, sure, we were using Zoom, we were using Teams, we were using other platforms, uh, virtual conferencing platforms to siphon off some of the, it, call them like more transactional sales conversations. And you saw this slow march where, you know, Zoom was constituting a higher percentage of the sales process over time. But March of 2020, it went 100% virtual overnight. And we had this sudden, um, this sudden kind of aha moment where we said, this is a moment that may never happen again in sales, which is that every single sales conversation is happening virtually which means they can all be recorded and it means they can all be studied with powerful technology like NLP, uh, you know, uh, automated um, or automatic uh, speech recognition, machine learning and studied at scale. You know, as a, as a researcher, I've always admired and, and frankly been envious of uh, Professor Neil Rackham's research back in the 70s and 80s that went into spin selling. In that study took Neil and his team uh, more than 12 years to complete. It was about two and a half million dollars in costs in today's dollars. They studied 35,000 sales interactions. And the way they did it is they actually traveled around and sat in on sales meetings. Hmm. And you know, the, think about that today, like if you know, pre-2020, 2019, 2019, if I ever proposed that to my boss, they'd laugh me out of the room. It's just no way. Especially when we don't know what we're gonna get out of it. But suddenly um, that changed overnight in March of 2020. So Ted and I committed to working with several dozen companies. We collected about two and a half million sales conversations and studied them at scale. Now, those sales conversations can reveal and answer many questions. But for us, the big question, the thing that I feel like was still unresolved out there in the world of sales was this problem of no decision. You know, despite all the great research that's been done uh, over the years, all the great training, all those tech stack investments, uh, consultancies we brought in, et cetera, still the average salesperson would say that they're much more likely to lose not to the competition but to no decision right to the customer doing nothing and you're you know in your intro you said it it is the most painful thing that salespeople experience still to this very day, uh, day. and i would argue and our data suggests that it's only getting worse actually as the expense and risk of our solutions uh, uh, creeps up as um, uh, you know there are more options out there not just that we're putting in front of customers but from startup competitors in every single market, the amount of information is just growing exponentially that customers could use to do research on, on purchases. It's much more likely today that a customer is going to say they want our solution, but then ghost us and, you know, go, go radio silent and get cold feet or, you know, backpedal and waffle and waver and second guess themselves and ultimately do nothing. And so what, what does the data we collect have to say about that problem? And 
what we found, um, I think, and again, in keeping with that, that disagreement research theme was absolutely uh, eye-opening and, and kind of startling, actually. Okay, so, I mean, you, you've given, you're making my head explode here. There's so <laughs> many, there's like a million different directions we could go here. But um, I, I want to get into the, into the, uh, the, the meat of the conversation. So let, let's start at the very beginning. So the data that you've collected, I mean, you've done your research. Um, why does customer indecision even happen? I mean, there, there's yeah. so much information out there. Like you said, that, you know, digital transformation is real. That is happening. People are self-educating online. Yeah. You got salespeople. There's so much out there. What causes this customer in, indecision? Yeah. So, you know, just like we, if we go back to, you know, you mentioned Challenger there, the story was about how we all thought the best salespeople build relationships are great needs. Diagnosers are very responsive and generous and, and sure, that's part and parcel of being a great salesperson, but it turns out the best salespeople are actually um, not, not so much asking the customer what's keeping them up at night, but telling them what should be keeping them up at night. And that was the real big aha from Challenger. If I think about that in the context of this study, um, the conventional wisdom out there is that when a customer starts to, starts to go dark, they stop responding to your emails, they stop re, you know, answering your calls, they start to no-show on your meetings, um, they start to go radio silent, they start to waffle and waver and backpedal. The conventional wisdom, what we've been taught forever in sales, is that the reason is that the customer is getting pulled back by the gravitational you know, power of the status quo, if you will, that you either haven't convinced the customer that what they're doing today is bad enough to, that they should change and that you haven't created that burning platform, or you haven't shown them that your solution represents a more compelling alternative. And I would go so far as to say that, you know, the status quo is, I think, believed by most salespeople, most sales managers and leaders to be, if not your biggest enemy in sales, then arguably your only enemy in sales. There really is nothing else. And we talk about this ourselves in the challenger sale. We talk about how challengers are really good at showing the customer how the pain of same is worse than the pain of change. But nevertheless, we still end up with a huge uh, percentage of deals winding up in no decision. Here's what we found is that when you look at the drivers of, um, of losses from inaction, the customer doing nothing, it turns out that there are a big chunk of them that are the result of failing to beat the status quo. So failing to show the customer the pain of same or failing to um, articulate powerfully the benefits of moving to your solution and, and doing things in a different way. But it turns out that's actually the less meaningful root cause. There are two big root causes. The status quo, failing to overcome the status quo, only accounted for about 44% of those no decision losses. 56% of them had to do with customers' in natural indecisiveness or customer indecision. It's the customer's unwillingness or inability to actually just make a decision. Now, there's a couple of things that are, that are interesting because this can be a hard concept for, I think, uh, salespeople to get their heads around sometimes. And here's um, the way I, I explain it is if you think about a loss um, uh, to the status quo, that is a function of status quo bias, which we're all guilty of as human beings. This is our preference to, uh, for things to remain the way they are. And we've always known this in sales, getting people to change and do something differently is hard. Even when you put a solution in front of them that is demonstrably, demonstrably better than what they do today, they'll still pass up on that because they're like, eh, change is hard. I mean, human beings, um, I, I, won't, I guess I'll offend everybody. We're just saying like, we are lazy. It's just the way we're genetically engineered. You know, we will seek out the path of least resistance. We will avoid uh, extra effort if we can. 
Um, so that is, a, again, a big chunk of the reason that customers end up in no decision is, or, or through inaction, um, uh, they, don't make a they don't make a decision, they don't buy, um, is because we fail to overcome the status quo. But it's only about 44% of the time. But I always want to uh, impress upon people that if you don't overcome the status quo, you're not selling anything, right? If you haven't convinced the customer what they're doing today is, is bad or what you want to sell them is better, you're not selling a thing. So step but one, it, overcome status quo. Step one, you got to beat the status quo. The um, what's interesting though is if if that's about preference for things to remain as they are, the status quo bias, indecisions were driven by something else called the omission bias. And the omission bias is comes from decades of human psychology and behavioral economics. That is about the customer's desire not for things to remain as they are, but to avoid making a mistake, personally making a mistake. And it turns out the social science also tells us there are three specific mistakes that customers are deathly afraid of making. The first one is that they pick the wrong thing. And so even if they picked your company, even if they said, you know, Ryan, I want to do business with your company, think about all the different configurations we put in front of our customers. You know, there's the three-year contract, the five-year, the 10-year. There's, we can go broad, we can go narrow with a pilot. We can do um, uh, professional, add professional services. We can do it ourselves. We can buy the premium version. We can buy the basic version. There are all kinds of different permutations that customers will sit back and say, while it was attractive during the sales conversation to have all these options, when push comes to sub and they got to buy something, it's like, well, what if I buy this, but I should have bought this other package. And then that's a point of no return. We can't undo that. You know, so they get wrapped around the axle there. The second one, that's called a valuation problem. The second one is lack of information. So this is where the customer feels like they haven't done enough research to be really savvy about the decision they're about to make. And as you and I both know, the amount of information out there is just growing exponentially. So it's this voice in the back of the customer's head saying, I bet you that next white paper that you read is going to have all the answers and going to help you avoid stepping on that landmine. Um, and then the third source of indecision, the third mistake uh, is called outcome uncertainty. And this is where the customer will look you in the eye. They will tell you they, they love what you're talking about. Your, the ROI projections look great. Those reference customers you had me talk to, you know, sung your praises. They love you guys. Um, everything looks awesome, but still there's this nagging feeling that for them personally, this whole thing could go sideways. And if it goes sideways, somebody's head's going to roll. And you know whose head's going to roll first is the person whose name is on the DocuSign, right? It's, that's when uh, their boss is going to come saying, who wasted all this money on this big, huge solution that just totally didn't pan out? It was a big waste of money. And you're going to have to speak, uh, speak to that and answer for that. So those are the three specific mistakes customers are worried about making. Now, think about those for a moment. None of those have anything to do with the status quo. It has nothing to do with the fact that the customer prefers what they do today. It has nothing to do with the fact that they don't believe your solution is a better alternative. It has to do with three personal mistakes that they don't want to make. And so this is why the customer will look us in the eye. They'll sit, they'll be on that Zoom and they will say, Ryan, I am sold. Like the way we do it, we cannot afford to keep doing things the way we are today. And I love what you guys have proposed. This looks awesome. Let's go. And they'll still not make a decision. And in our research, we found that anywhere from 40 to 60% of the time, even after the customer said, yeah, you beat the status quo, you've not overcome the customer's indecision. So just to sum up, what I would say is that there, there's, in sales, we've always been taught that there's really only one playbook you need. And that playbook is beat the status quo. And what we, what we found is that actually salespeople need two playbooks. You got to beat the status quo. You're not you're not collecting $200, you're not passing go if you're not beating the status quo. But you also need a playbook for overcoming indecision. And for a salesperson, they've got to understand when it's time to toggle from one playbook to the other, right? And when it's time to shift gears. Um, if, over, if beating the status quo is about 
if you will, uh, dialing up the fear of not purchasing, then overcoming indecision is actually about dialing down the fear of purchasing. So it's after the point of commitment and intent is expressed, now the customer starts to sweat the personal they, that they could personally be left holding the bag. Maybe they didn't do enough homework. Maybe they signed up for the wrong configuration and somebody's going to have to answer for that. And so it's, it's a lot of it is about risk mitigation and getting them personally comfortable with, you're in good hands. We're making a great decision here. Let's go. And so we document that in the book and in, in the research, a set of four behaviors that high performers use, which we call the JOLT approach. And JOLT is an acronym. We'll talk about that. But it's an approach high performers use, which in many respects is contrary to what they classic people have been classically taught in sales training. What they're doing is the exact opposite. But just like Challenger, they figured this out on their own. You know, these are just smart salespeople who figured out that I've, over, I've gotten the customer to express their intent, but how do I get them to take action? And it requires a different playbook. So, okay, so you just nailed something for us. So at we at Primary Intelligence, we do win-loss analysis, right? Mm -hmm. So we're doing the, the post-mortems, you're doing the, the front-end stuff, and we're doing all the back-end stuff. And one of the things when we're talking with highly consultative sales, it, when we ask the question, look, you know, why did you purchase? Why did you select this company or this company? Oftentimes, we get just a maddening response, and that is, well, it was just a good fit. Yeah. It, was just, it was just a good fit. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, well, how do you define fit? Yeah. And, you know, we have some ideas around this, but what I'm hearing you say is there's an inflection point or that could impact this, yeah, this idea of right. a fit. And that's, that's this right. toggling between the intention versus the, the dialing down the fear of the purchase. That's 100% right. And so I think when you think about fit, which is such an ambiguous and frust frustratingly oh. ambiguous term for somebody to provide as an answer, but if we dig a little bit deeper, Maybe, you know, I think historically we think, well, must be fit of us as a supplier. Our solution fits into what they're trying to accomplish or it fits into their strategy. And yeah, that's absolutely true. But there's also that personal fit that, that this, this salesperson, they guided me to the right choice. They helped me understand what I need to, what research I need to do and what was superfluous. And they gave me confidence that this is actually going to work out well and I'm going to look like a hero and we're going to get what we're paying for. Like there's fit at that level too. Here's a, an interesting wrinkle. And I think this is probably the most uh, troubling thing that came out of the research is that we found, not surprisingly, because again, as I said before, every salesperson in the world has been taught that um, if the customer starts to waver and get cold feet, it's because you haven't overcome the status quo. So, you, so what do salespeople do? They go back and they hammer the status quo. Double they down, dial, baby. Right? Double down. <laughs> Oh yeah, they dial up the FUD. They talk about, oh, you're going to be missing out. You know, this problem's not going to solve itself. Look at all your competitors gapping you in the market and your employees and your customers hate you because you use this old legacy product, all this stuff, right? We try to make them sweat about the current situation or we, we dial up how great our solution is. Maybe they just don't fully get how awesome our solution is and, and the, the unique value we're going to provide. So that happened in our research. We found that uh, first of all, we found indecision happens all the time. It, it, I think 87%, if I'm remembering correctly, 87% of opportunities across the two and a half million sales calls we collected had either moderate or high levels of customer indecision. And we were measuring that through the emotions expressed during the conversation. But if you think about that for a moment, that's like, that means the decisive customers are the exception. It's the indecisive ones that are the rule. And we probably already knew that in sales, right? But it is a huge problem. And if you think about this, that moment of indecision where the customer starts to waver, if we've only ever been taught that it's because you haven't beaten the status quo, we found 75% of salespeople go back to the well. They go back to hammer the status quo. And here's the thing. 
if you go back and hammer the status quo with a customer who has already abandoned, intellectually abandoned the status quo and is now ready to move forward, but they're struggling instead with one of those three fears we talked about, you actually make things worse, not better. In fact, we found that it backfires 84% of the time. When customers, when salespeople go back and hammer the status quo with an indecisive customer, not a customer who's, who's grasping the status quo, but somebody who's agreed to let it go, they make things worse, not better. And they increase the odds the customer will end up not making any decision. So this inflection point, this fulcrum point, this, this, this yeah. nexus, this crossroads matters is what I'm hearing you That's say. Right. This, is, this, is a map, this is a pinpoint in time that matters. So, okay. okay. So you mentioned JOLT as an acronym. I want to understand yep. that a little bit more. Um, help me understand, you know, so, so th- we, we understand the inflection points, uh, it matters. Instead of doubling down on what we've known, how should we look at things differently? What should we do differently? Yeah, so the, um, I'll, I'll hit the high level on these and maybe we can uh, double click on each. But the um, JOLT stands for uh, judge the indecision, offer your recommendation, limit the exploration, and then take risk off the table. So well, I'll just let me start with the first one and then we can, we can um, talk a little bit there and then we can go to the other ones. So judge the indecision. You know, we, as a follow-up to this, we actually ran a series of um, interviews with high-performing salespeople, uh, salespeople we'd identified in the research who had kind of figured out this indecision playbook. They would have never called it that. They, you know, they're sort of, um, I say like subconsciously competent, like they just, it's like challengers. And when we did, we did interviews with challengers, they never would have used that word to describe what they're doing, but, but they could kind of explain it in their own way. Um, now, when we interviewed and did focus groups with these salespeople, what came out, and we, we've always known that great salespeople are really good at uh, not chasing garbage trucks, right? They are, they're really good at identifying bad fit opportunities and disqualifying them out. But one of the things we didn't fully appreciate is that best salespeople will qualify or disqualify an opportunity, not just on the customer's ability to buy, but also on their ability to decide. And so there's a set of things they're looking for, almost like tells when you're playing poker with, you know, um, you're at the poker table and you're looking for those signals from your uh, your opponents or the people you're playing with that that give it away that you know maybe they they're bluffing or what have you, and so there are a series of tells that high performers are looking for that give them uh, a sense for how much of a slog is this going to be a and b is this customer no matter how good of a fit it might be on paper. Um, they might have the budget. It might be a great use case fit for us. It might be one where we've got tons of reference clients in their industry. We've got a demonstrated track record of success. Um, it nevertheless may be that this customer is so mired in indecision that it's just not worth our time. And so we may be better off firing them from our pipeline and not pursuing them simply because they'll never be able to make a decision. So in that J, what we do is we really distill some of those behavioral markers, the things that high performers are actually listening for from the very first sales conversation that are indicators of how indecisive this customer is going to be and how hard it's going to be to get them across the finish line. You know, again, that's either going to tell us, do we keep spending time here? Do we we fire them from our pipeline? But even if we spend time there, what it tells us is, you know, again, this customer might look great on paper, but I can just tell it's going to take a really long time to get them across the finish line. I'm not going to forecast them for this quarter. I'm going to forecast them for like two or three quarters out and to make sure that that everyone in the organization, uh, my boss, my boss's boss, they have that mindset that this one looks great on paper, but it's going to take us a long time. Here's why. So again, not just ability to buy, but ability to decide. So that J is all about what are the markers and how do we train ourselves to listen for those signs of indecision? 
So uh, pausing here, okay, yeah. step one, overcome status quo, which is a kind of attached to maybe potentially change readiness, right? So, yeah. so these behavioral markers that you're talking about are, are beyond change readiness. I'm, I'm that's saying. 100% right. Yeah, that's right. These are, these are personal ability to make decisions. You're right. The change readiness piece is absolutely paramount. You know, look, we are, um, and I personally am closely associated with the challenger research. And I would argue if you're looking for a great beat the status quo playbook, challenger is it. And I, I think it's a well-documented, well-researched and differentiated approach to beat the status quo. But, you know, many organizations take many different approaches to that, different sales methodologies, et cetera. But what's interesting is every single sales methodology, and I would include challenger here, is a, an approach for beating the status quo, for assessing that change readiness, showing the customer the pain of same, showing them how much better things will be in the new way forward the, you know, with your solution, but they don't address this indecision. In fact, what they do is they teach uh, salespeople, hey, if you've gotten to the end of this process and the customer still isn't convinced, you obviously need to go back to the beginning because they're not, they're still gripping, you know, that status quo with a, you know, Vulcan death grip and you gotta, you gotta, you gotta break it. <laughs> so that's that's hard to do by the way yeah. when, once you're in the vulcan it's not part, easy right it's not yeah. easy you're, yeah. you're in the throes of all right so this is judge what's oh give me a little okay. bit uh, yeah. high level sure uh so o is offer your recommendation now we we know that you know choice for our customers is a double-edged sword choice looks really good on paper and choice is one of those things where the customer goes to our website and in those first conversations that idea of an eminently configurable solution that you can, you know, you can buy it this way, you can buy it that way, you can add this, you can add that. There's premium, there's basic, there's you know, essentials, et cetera. It's awesome to have all this choice, but that choice starts to cut the other way. After the customer's past the point of like, I want it, I'm ready to go. When they got to make a decision, it actually works against their ability to make a decision. And too much choice, as we know from you know, the Barry Schwartz work around paradox of choice, it overwhelms people. Overwhelms. And so we found best salespeople doing is they, at some point, again, that inflection point, as you said, Ryan, they, they know that the time for letting a thousand flowers bloom is over and the time to tell the customer what they should buy has begun. And it's interesting because you look at average performing salespeople, when the customer starts to get antsy about like, gosh, you put three different options. I just don't know. I mean, maybe we should go for the deeper discount by signing up for the longer term, but what if this doesn't work for us? So maybe the shorter term is better because it allows us an out and we pay a little bit more, but I, I don't know. Should we go with a thousand licenses or maybe, you know what, maybe it's better to start in this business unit with just like, 10 power users and then we'll, you know, we'll expand from, I just don't know what to do. What do most salespeople do? They go back and ask the customer what they want. They re-diagnose the customer's needs. You know, they put it back in the customer. Um, and what customers don't want in that moment is to be asked more questions. What they want is to be told what, what is the best, the best option, right? So it is a personal recommendation. The way it sounds in calls is the salesperson saying, you know, we put a lot of options in front of you and it's probably overwhelming, but I think I've learned enough about your organization, what you're trying to accomplish here that if I were you, I'd go with this one. And here's why. And you know what? We can always adapt later on down the road. But customers like you, they buy this configuration and they never look back and they just love it. And you know what's a, an added benefit there is when that suggestion, that when that recommendation is actually less expensive than the one the customer might have talked themselves into. You know, so they're looking at the all seeing, all dancing and say, you know what? I think you don't really need the premium version. I think the 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 um, the basic or advanced version would be sufficient for your needs. We can always expand later, but let's save you a little bit of money right now, and let's make you look like a hero, and let's generate the demand for those higher level capabilities. The last thing you want to do is buy capabilities you're not going to use, right? 
is a huge way to, is a great way to overcome the agency dilemma and this feeling that customers have that they're being oversold, right? But you got to shift from asking what they want to buy to telling them what they should buy. Okay. So there's, I'm thinking in my own brain here, we're moving from the, uh, what do you want? You know, the Spice Girls moment, tell me what you want, what you really, yeah. really want to, <laughs> uh, to right. a, a place where you're saying, okay, tell me what to do. They, they now want yeah. guidance on best That's practices. Right. They want to understand they want to believe that you created the belief that you're a potential partner. Now they want to see it. Tell me what yeah. to do. You're the owner of this space. You're yeah. the best in this space. Tell me where to go. Am I following? Yeah. Yep. A hundred percent. And it's a, it's a moment for the salesperson to demonstrate um, ownership, subject matter expertise. You get to be seen as an expert by the customer and instill that confidence that, you know what, we're making a great choice here. Trust me. I've got your best interests in mind. Let's, let's go. Uh, and it, it, you're 100% right, is it shifting from uh, abundant choice to actually constrained guidance. Love that. I, I, you know, I personally like Spice Girls better, but I think yours is smarter. So pretty good. It's, Spice Girls is pretty good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, all right, L, let's get to L. Yeah, yeah. So limit the exploration. So, you know, we all know that customers left to their own devices will do research until the cows come home. And what we what we found is that best salespeople whether they knew this or not, kind of operate by the old um, uh, Colin Powell um, guidance, which was um, that decisions should be made um, somewhere between 40% of the required information and 70% of the required information. If you make a decision with less than 40%, you're kind of, you're guessing, you're shooting from the hip. But if you wait until you have more than 70% of the required information, that leads to analysis paralysis. And high performers seem to understand this. And we actually found this in the data Average performers, when they're asked by the customer, you know, hey, I, I want to wait till you guys do this webinar next quarter. I'm going to do one more demo, one more reference call. I want, you know, let's do, let's let get to another iteration of the proposal, the ROI calculation. I, I want to consume more white papers, more content. They kind of feed the beast. They just continue to send the customer more information. Um, high performers, though, constrain the learning. And what they're trying to do um, is get the customer to kind of trust them and not do superfluous research because they know that if they do that, the odds of success are very, very low. In fact, we found that when salespeople actually feed the beast and give the customer endless amounts of information, win rates are about 15%. When salespeople can actually constrain the learning and limit the exploration, win rates are more like 42%. Now, how do they do it? Because um, it's very hard to say to the customer, like, you know, last time I checked, like Jedi mind tricks don't work and say, you know, you don't, these aren't the droids you're looking for. You don't need to read that white paper. It's not going to be anything. Don't wait for that next magic quadrant report. Well, like what, you know, come on. <laughs> um, it doesn't really work. So uh, what do best salespeople do? We found um, a few different behaviors in the research. The first one is they own the flow of information. What does it mean in sales? Well, what it means is that high performers um, want to establish themselves personally as an expert in the eyes of the customer. And when you get down to it, what that means is they're much more likely to do their own demos. Even in, even in the same com uh, company, we found this is fascinating, high performers were orders of magnitude more likely to do their own demos than their average performing peers who tended to bring in uh, solutions engineers, product people, CS folks to come in and do their demos. Um, secondly, they, they hold off on bringing outside help, if you will, product experts, again, solutions engineers, product, um, uh, 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 customer success folks, customer support folks onto the call or into the sales process until they absolutely must. And when they do it, it's not like, you know, hey, Ryan's our head of product, Ryan, take it away. It's 
we prep and you know that you were to answer one question and then you stop and then you hand it back to me, right? Because the old adage in sales is very true and high performers know this is that um, if you get delegated down to the person you sound like, and if you don't see, if you seem like a high powered admin, but not really an expert on, on this use case or on this solution or this technology or you know, this general market, you're not adding a lot of value to the customer. So you got to position yourself as knowing more about what the customer is about to purchase, the decision they're about to make, the use case they're pursuing than the customer themselves knows. Uh, the second thing you've got to do is anticipate needs and objections. Now, this kind of goes without saying is that when our customers object, we've got to rebut that objection. Interestingly, though, only about 70% um, of all the objections that were raised in the calls we studied were actually met with a rebuttal by the salesperson. What we found is high performers, not surprisingly, uh, rebut objections 100% of the time. But not only that, but they anticipate unstated objections. So you see this in a couple of different flavors. So one is that they pick up on these subtle cues, not that the customer is objecting, objecting, but rather that they're not totally buying what you're saying. And sometimes that just happens through the way it's said, right? When you say to me, um, so does this make sense to you? Or do you see how this applies in your, your this would apply in your organization? And I say, yeah, I suppose there's something in there, right? There's something underneath your average performer. Just if you didn't say no, then we're, we're moving right ahead. Right? Let's, so, let's, let's blow through that let's stop go. sign. <laughs> right. Your high performer hears that and they hit time. They hit the timeout button. They say, well, you know what? Um, I, I could tell you're not totally buying it. What's going on? Like, help me, help me understand. Cause if I don't understand, I can't address it. Um, the other thing you'll, you'll find is that they'll, they'll more proactively suggest objections that the, the, the customer hasn't brought up at all. Say, you know, Usually at this point, people are wondering about like what happens if X, Y, or Z takes place or what happens if this happens in our organization? How do we adapt the solution? Um, let me just get ahead of that now and tell you what we've learned about this. And it's such a confidence giver, again, that you are talking to a subject, a true expert. And the last one is practicing uh, radical candor, which where I think many of us are familiar with as a concept, but is an empathetic way to basically... Um, uh, call out what is really driving the customer's request. So when the customer asks you for that additional demo with the same team who saw the demo last time, or for a fifth reference call when they've already done four, and usually you only do two, and it's, help me understand what's driving this request. What, what are you really looking for? Because I, I actually, I know that reference call is going to, the fifth one's going to go great, just like the other four. And if, if it goes great, are you ready to move forward? Because my sense is maybe you're not. And if, if there's something else going on, you got to let me know because I, I can't address what I don't know about. So let's have an honest and frank conversation about what's really driving that request. And by the way, if it is that you just need a fifth reference call, then I'd like your assurance that when it goes swimmingly, which it will, that you're ready to sign. And so we make that powerful request to force the force the customer's hand a bit. And high performers are unafraid to do that because they don't they don't want to waste the customer's time. They don't want to waste the time of their reference clients. They don't want to waste their own team's time with with these superfluous requests. So again, a couple of the behaviors we found for limiting uh, the exploration. Love that. Okay, let's get the T. Tell me about yeah. the T. Taking risk off the table. So remember we talked about one of the mistakes customers are worried about uh, committing in a purchase is that uh, they'll basically not get what they're paying for. That, you know, everything you've talked about, the rosy ROI projections, the, the wonderful returns won't come to pass. And then they'll be left holding the bag. So these are very tactical approaches we can take to make the customer feel like they're, they're not jumping off a cliff but uh, they're taking a leap, but there's a safety net there. So in simple transactional sales in our study, we found that often these were in the form of opt-out clauses and money-back guarantees and things like that. Now, in complex solution sales, 
most B2B organizations don't offer that. So what do they offer instead? Well, what we found is high performers were much more likely to proactively suggest adding professional services to a contract. For instance, you know, if you look at uh, the tech space or in software in particular, and it's going to add a little bit of cost to the contract. But I'll tell you what, this is going to, it gives us that assurance that nothing is going to go wrong here. We're going to put our crack team on this, um, make sure that we've got those professional services hours added into the contract so they can help us get down the learning curve quickly and get off to the races. Um, you saw some creative um, contracting as well. I'll give you a, a quick story here. Um, a head of sales in, um, uh, in software who we're interviewing uh, had an awesome story, which had happened to him just recently. It's actually in the book. He said he was sitting down with um, the CEO of a large uh, prospective customer uh, getting ready. They're in the final throes of signing a five business unit deal, five-year contract. It was going to be their company's, his company's biggest deal that year. Um, tens of millions of dollars. And they're sitting down and suddenly the CEO of the customer organization said, you know, we're ready to move forward, but I got to tell you, I feel good about these four business units, but this one over here, you guys told me during the sale, some of the data requirements and the legacy systems we have there are going to present, you've never seen them before. It's going to present some challenges to you. And um, we're a little bit nervous that things could go sideways there. The other four, we feel good about this one though, we're, we're a little nervous. And by the way, it turns out this is our cash cow, right? This is, the, this is the thing that drives the entire business, right? And and this was a new CEO. And she actually said, uh, if this goes sideways, I will my seat will barely get warm. My, the board will, I'll be gone, right? I cannot sabotage the cash cow of our enterprise. And so we're not sure we're ready to move forward. And they asked for some things that the software vendor couldn't provide, like an assurance, a guarantee it would work, all these kinds of things. And the software vendor is a publicly traded company and there's no way they could offer that kind of guarantee. But what, here's what they did. And I thought this was very creative. They said, um, here's what we proposed. Let's put the four business units you feel good about. Let's put them on the five-year contract, run off, tackle left and go. The one business unit you're nervous about, let's put it on a one-year cancelable for any reason um, uh, contract. If it goes well in the first year, we'd love if you would re-up it and align it with the other business units, but you know, add another four years on. Um, and what they knew, and, and that gave them the safety net where the, the CEO felt like, okay, cool. If this goes sideways, I'm not, I'm not in this for a five-year term. I've only got this one year and I can cancel for any reason. And the software lead, sales leader was saying, look, we hadn't seen some of those data uh, configuration before. We hadn't seen some of these legacy systems. It was going to be a challenge, but we swarmed it with resources and we just absolutely, you know, Kick that, you know, kick that the solutions, but we did a great job. We and we convinced them within three months that this was going to work. They actually didn't even wait the full year and they brought it into line with the other agreements and set, assigned the extension. But it was just that little give, right? And here's the other thing they said, you know what? We gave you a huge discount for five business units, five, units, five years. We're going to give that to you anyway, because we're not going to penalize you for you being rightfully nervous about a really important part of your business. And we're going to convince you that we're going to, you know, do great here. And they did. So talk about partnership, my gosh, right? So this yeah. creative problem solving and really stepping into the shoes of the other person rather than just thinking, oh no, my sale, oh no, my sale. Forget about yeah. that, partner with yeah. the people, figure out how to help remove that, uh, taking, taking that uh, risk off the table. Man, I, I yeah. love that. So, okay, what, what are the biggest obstacles, man? So, I mean, what, what's the reality? You got salespeople here. Um, what are the obstacles that stop them from being able to do these things, you know, to, to take the yeah. risk off the table, to, to judge the indecision to you, you said something before that makes some of our listeners, sales leaders, heads explode. 
That was fire the customer from our <laughs> pipeline, right? right? Like, oh my gosh, some, when people hear that, they're like, oh no, right. what gets in their way? You know, um, I think, uh, I think I would say like the system, you know, kind of gets in the way. But I, what I mean by that is um, the way we've all grown up, been been taught, you know, sales works, that, which is if the customer waivers go back and hammer the SAS code, there's no other reason they couldn't say yes. But we're not appreciating all these other things that could get them to say, I need to think about it, you know, and I need to I need to I need to take my time here that have nothing to do with the status quo. And for me, at least, you know, personally, it was it was like this V. I'm going to date myself a little bit, but it was like that V8 commercial, like I had the V8 moment where I was like, this is why we continue to lose to no decision is that un, unbeknownst to us, we're actually making it worse. We're increasing the because think about it. If you use fear like FUD techniques to sell to a customer who's already scared, this is a pretty bad playbook. Right? We're just making things worse. We're increasing the odds they do nothing. We're our own worst enemies there. And I think in many respects, when I say the system, I'm talking about the training we're receiving, the coaching we're being given, the, that, that wisdom passed down from leader to manager to rep. That's all about beat the SAS code, beat the SAS code, beat the SAS code, dial up the FUD, make them, show them what they're missing out on, show them the risk of inaction. But remember, what's holding them up is not fear of losing out because of inaction. It's fear of making a mistake because of action, right? Because of something they do and they're going to be personally culpable for that and, and responsible, and they're going to have to answer for that. So, you know, a lot of just the way we do things, um, incentive systems, for instance, that are always pushing our salespeople to go for the bigger deal, when a great way to actually overcome agency dilemma and take risk off the table is actually to tell the customer, you don't need to buy this all singing, all dancing, let's start smaller. Because what we and we found this in the data is that high performers will proactively talk the customer back from the things the customer themselves is talking about buying and saying, I don't think that's right for you. I really don't. As much as I'd love to sell you the million dollar solution, I think you can get by with, with something a little bit less. And you know what? You're going to save a little bit of money. There's going to be less pressure on you personally. We're going to do great. And then we can expand from there. So they ultimately sell more down the road by selling less now is very counter to the way that incentive systems operate and the way that sales salespeople are always wired to like bring in the big, huge deal. Even this notion out there, you read it in some of the sales research that a high quality deal is one that is the biggest, most profitable deal we could possibly land. But it turns out in the long term, that may not be the right answer for the customer, especially an indecisive customer right now. So again, it's just a lot of the, the conventional wisdom, the signals and the reinforcement that just tell us to hammer the status quo, go for the biggest deal possible, ride roughshod over the customer's fears, you know, dial up the, you know, their concerns about missing out on a golden opportunity that, um, you know, that that prevents salespeople from really doing what's right, which, as you said, it's really to be more of a partner to the customer, to, to understand what they're going through, put, you know, an arm around their shoulders and say, it's going to be okay. We're making a great decision. You're in good hands and, and you're not jumping off this cliff without a net. We've got you and this is going to go great. So that's, that's so powerful. Uh, if you were to say, look, um, sales leader, um, this is how you can start to influence customer and decision right now with your sales reps. Mm -hmm. What would you tell a sales leader to do? Yeah, I, so I think what's interesting about this, and I think as different from Challenger, I always felt, and I love, I love it's like, I, we talked about before, I have four kids, I love all my kids. <laughs> and, you know, I love Challenger's one of my kids, I love it, it's great. It's a, a wonderful playbook for being the status quo. But it was always tough for um, sales organizations. And what I mean by that is, I mean, you know the story. We come out in the five profiles and you need insight to power a challenger conversation. It's a lot of work. It's a big transformation. And um, after I come out and I present challenger, it's like a, 
Oh boy. Like this is going to be really, this is going to be tough. It is tough. It doesn't happen overnight. Jolt is different. And so I've been out there presenting this to sales organizations, just kind of in the early going. And as we iron out the story and we finish up the book and the reaction from salespeople is I can go do the, that stuff this afternoon. Right you know? now. Right, right, now. right. It's not about changing everything about who you are and what you do, but it's about listening more intently for those signs of indecision saying what you want to say, but just say, you know, the customer's about to make the wrong decision. You know what they should buy. Treat them as if they're your best friend. What would you tell your best friend to do in this situation? Here's what I think you should do. Customers like you love this, this configuration, forget the other ones. Buy this one. Uh, limit the exploration. How do you avoid, you know, probe a little bit for why the customer's asking for that extra demo, their extra reference call. And those things about taking risk off the table, starting small, creative contracting, even saying, you know, hey, we do have an opt-out clause. And if anything goes wrong, you won't be left holding the bag. And talking about those things with confidence gives the customer that feeling like, oh, this is going to be okay. Everything's going to go well. And I'm in good hands. And I think it's just being told these things and the power they can have. When you look at the conversion rate difference between using these Jolt techniques and not, it is literally night and day. I mean, I've mentioned a couple, but but the, the conversion rate lift from being good at some of these behaviors is, is huge. And, and it's not a big thing for salespeople. So just being given permission to go do these things, I think is in many cases, a lot of what sales, all salespeople need to start doing some of this stuff and seeing fewer deals lost to no decision, um, less kind of, uh, you know, going into the solutions graveyard, that wasteland of, of inaction that salespeople so often find themselves in. Okay. So speaking of the, the wasteland of sales and action, what's the one thing for our, for our listeners today, any listener, what's the, you know, maybe one thing, one piece of advice that they should do to take action and start to move today? Yeah. Uh, great. Uh, great question. I gave, gave you a lot. I think, um, again, to think, put yourself in the customer's shoes and remember that uh, being a customer, there's been a lot written on this. I've written on this um, in recent years, being a customer is really, really hard. And these decisions, even for business customers, are very, very personal. Um, and so the best thing you can do is to uh, send your customer those signals that you are a confident expert who has their best interests in mind, and you're going to be a partner in, uh, in getting them across the finish line. Now, really tactically, what I'd say is um, if you have a recommendation, if you know that the best configuration of your solution is X, and you're not telling your customer that, you're doing a disservice. So for, the, for every salesperson out there, when they're out there talking to the customer about um, how to buy, what they should buy, um, shift from asking to telling. And, and in fact, it, it may feel, it'll feel counterintuitive um, because it's not what you've been taught, but that's actually what the customer wants. And if you don't tell them, they'll try to figure it out on their own and it's going to take them a really long time. So that, that's, I mean, just across the four, I think that's a really good one. Every salesperson I talk to and I ask them, What's the best configuration of your solution? What's the right way to do business with you? They say, well, if you really want my advice, you should do this, then you should do that. But I wouldn't buy this because customers who buy that don't really like it. You know, they get a lot of value. Why don't you tell everybody that? You know, but they hold it back, right? Because they want to, they believe the customer's always right, guide them to the decision that they're going to make naturally, give them a lot of options, a lot of choice, ask good questions. The customer's not going to figure it out. They're not as smart as the salesperson is about this stuff. And so they're really looking for somebody to take them by the hand and tell them what they should do. Matt, man, this was fun. I, I wish we had more time. Thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate no, it. No, this is, this is great. Thank you for the invitation. I hope your uh, listeners enjoy it. And the book, as you said, goes on sale in September. Uh, you can pre-order it now at everywhere books are sold. Uh, so check it out. The Jolt Effect, How High Performers Overcome uh, Customer Indecision.
No, that, that's exactly right. I, frankly, I cannot wait. I've pre-ordered mine today. Thank you. Before I think I pre-ordered it. Can't wait to, to read it when it's released in September. Perfect. Well, thank you again for the invite. If you haven't already, follow the link in the show notes to pre-order your copy today. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so that you never miss an episode. And we'll see you next time.